television is where all the big risks are being taken, where the most exciting work is happening. And this is a festival that celebrates that. Finally, there's an independent avenue for people who want to just go into the TV business. It's just wonderful to have an outlet for all of the creativity that's happening in television and in new digital media right now. The fact that there's this, there's Series Fest, which allows you to put it in front of an audience and gives you a platform to put it out there. Like that's the most impactful thing as artists that we can ever hope for. Hi, I'm Randy Kleiner. And I'm Kaylee Smith Westbrook. As the co-founders of Series Fest, we welcome you to Breaking In, a Series Fest podcast. In 2015, Series Fest began its mission to champion and empower artists at the forefront of episodic storytelling by providing year-round opportunities for creators and industry experts to connect, collaborate, and share stories. We are thrilled to expand our mission with this podcast as we talk to working professionals in television and gain insight, advice, and hear their journey of breaking in. Today's episode is a live recording of one of our Series Fest Insiders events. These events are exclusive to our community of creators and artists to create connections and support by giving them access to working professionals in television. This conversation you are about to hear was hosted back in May 2021. During this Insider event, Kaylee interviewed Austin Winsberg, the creator and executive producer of NBC's Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist. Winsberg's other television credits include Gossip Girl and Jake in Progress, where he served as a creator and executive producer as the youngest showrunner in ABC history. Winsberg is the book writer of the Broadway musical First Date, which ran at the Longacre Theater on Broadway in 2013. He currently has multiple active projects in development at ABC, Apple, and Universal, and he has written numerous half-hour and hour-long television pilots for ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox, Showtime, Amazon, and Freeform. To learn more about our insider events and connect with creators like Austin, please follow us on our social channels and join our mailing list at seriesfest.com. Let's do it. Let's do it. I want to go back and kind of start at the beginning and hear like, what inspired you to start writing? Okay. Uh, What inspired me to start writing? Well, I started off, I was a bit of a child actor growing up. So from an early age, I just knew that I wanted to do something acting wise. I grew up in Los Angeles. Uh, I started reading Variety when I was 12 years old, maybe 11. Uh, but before that, I would, I would, I had like an agent and I would go out for commercials and TV shows when I was a kid. And then I went to a theater camp in New York in the Catskills called Stage Door Manor. This is a camp that you are familiar yes. with. <laughs> I am. And I'm very familiar. Full disclosure, like we, we know each other a little bit. We do, but yes. which we, we realized and connected earlier that my first year, I saw you in a wonderful production of Me and My Girl, which I really remember. I remember sitting there watching it and I we didn't know until today that I Just was watching Just riveted you. by my performance. A hundred percent. Well, I think I was like eight years old and I was watching you and all these older kids and they were so talented and it was the Jay yes. show, which was like the big show at camp. And That's right. So, yeah. That's right. Well, yes, I did get to flex my uh, dance and singing muscles in that show, which are not very impressive. And uh, But I had a best friend at that camp who was a young playwright. 
And he was winning all these playwriting contests all around the country. He was kind of like a young playwriting prodigy. And he had written like 80 plays or something by the time he was 18 years old. He was like a young Neil Simon. And he started, and I think we took a writing class together at Stage Door and made each other laugh a lot. And then he started sending me his plays and I would read them. And I was like, well, I, I think I could do that too. So I started writing plays and I won the Blank Theater Company LA Young Playwrights Festival five times before I was 19 years old. Oh my God. And so I kind of started getting, and I always thought that I needed to act and be in, on stage or in front of the camera in order to get validation from it and to feel good about what I was doing. But somehow writing plays and then sitting in the audience and watching other people do it, you know, people laugh at jokes that I had written. Uh, it was kind of a whole new level of <laughs> anxiousness and nervousness, but also pride that came with it. Right. And I just, and also I was getting validation from the writing that was kind of a validation that I felt like I wasn't getting as much from, um, the acting. And so mm. I was a theater major in college. I'm trying to do this quickly. I was a theater major in college. And then after college, I came back to L.A. And uh, I, I went to Brown University. And then afterwards, I came back to L.A. And I worked at a movie studio for a year at New Line Cinema because I thought maybe I'd want to be a movie executive because of all the reading variety. And I was like a walking IMDb before IMDb existed. You could test me. We could see how we do. And um, But after working at New Line for a year, I just felt like it wasn't creative enough for me. And I was reading all these scripts that were coming in every single day. And I was feeling like, I should be doing that. And I was giving notes on the scripts for the writers. It was really corrupt, like a 21-year-old kid. This shows any writers who are on here. Like, you know, if you ever get a studio notes or whatever, it's very possible it's coming from, like, the assistant who just started a week before. And so I was giving, like, pages of notes on scripts. And I was like, maybe I should actually be writing the scripts instead. So I convinced my friend who had gone to Stage Door, who was one of my best friends, to come to L.A., and we became writing partners. And so we we spent a bunch of time trying to write a movie, a really complicated sliding doors type movie, and uh, it didn't turn out very well. And then we said, why don't we write a couple TV specs? Because we had this idea in our head that it would be fun to be in a TV writer's room. And off of we wrote two TV specs. I think we wrote a Malcolm in the Middle and a Scrubs. Or, I'm sorry, the first two were Malcolm in the Middle and that 70s show. And off of those two, we got an agent. And then the next year, we got very lucky and we got staffed on our first show. So wow. we were staffed at like 23, 24 years old. That's amazing. And did you continue to get staffed together? I, I don't know how that works with writing partners when you're staffed together and how you kind of like split up and then start writing on your own. How did that uh, work? You know, just in the most messy way possible. Of course, um, with your best friend, of course. Yes. Yeah, so we had, <laughs> so we spent a year working, writing on a show for the WB before it was the CW. It was a Kevin Williamson show. Uh, who had created all the Scream movies and Dawson's Creek. And he did this show called Glory Days. And originally the show was supposed to be this soft drama about a guy who writes a novel all about his hometown and his family. And at five years later, he has no success. And he goes back to the hometown and everybody hates him. And it was going to be kind of like a Felicity kind of show. And we were kind of brought on to be the comedy guys in this drama room. Well, the show gets picked up and the WB comes back to Kevin Williamson and says – um, we really, we like the show, but we just have too many soft dramas on our air right now, but you're like a murder guy and like a mystery guy, like a horror guy. So can you just take the entire cast, all the sets, everything you did for the glory day show that you wrote and turn it into a murder mystery every week? So suddenly there was an entire writing staff of people who had never written anything with murder or horror, uh, learning how to have to do that. And so oh that God. was like trial by fire on my very first job. And then from that, we went on this TV show, a multi-camera show called Still Standing on CBS. And after the first season of uh, Still Standing, I had this idea for a TV show 
that was a romantic comedy version of 24. 24 had only been on the air for like a year or two at that point. And I thought, wouldn't it be funny if you take all the stakes and the pressure of 24, but put it in one day. So season one was going to be, or don't put it in one day, that doesn't mean it's already one day. Put it in like a romantic comedy one, I love so, that. That's so fun. So season one was going to be the first date. Season two was going to be their wedding day. Season three was going to be the birth of their first child. And every day was going to be this like comedic series of mishaps and farce and all this stuff as these two people are trying to get together. And um, I pitched it to my writing partner and he didn't really love it. And so I just ended up writing it on my own as a fluke. And then it just snowballed and the, the, my agent liked it. And then she sent it to 20th where we were kind of under a deal because of the show. And then 20th bought it. And then John Stamos got involved. And then it became this show called Jake in Progress that was on ABC for two years. Oh, and right. so okay. I went from being like a, a story editor, which is a low level guy on a writing staff to being a showrunner at like 26, 27 years old. You were running the show at 26. I was, I had, I think I had a co might've been 27. Um, but I had a co showrunner who was a, an older gentleman who had had a lot more experience, who was kind of running it with me, but he really let me be the voice and be in charge and, and do it all. So it was really like learning as I went. And, but the, the net result of that was it ended up costing me the, the partnership and the friendship. And right. it's a long, it's a long tortured story, which oh, I can I'm happily sure. talk about at some point. I'm curious with, um, you know, a, a lot of our community, they're content creators and they write and create their own pilots and we have an independent pilot competition. And I think the conversation that comes up a lot is like, if and when I go and sell this, I want to be the showrunner, but clearly they're going to need to bring someone else on who's going to handle and be in a similar situation of what you just explained. So is there anything that you really learned from that experience? Um, or like advice you could give for someone who is in that same position? Well, first of all, I think the fact that they let me run it was very, very rare. Mm. I think that I think that there was something about at least the, the, the relationship that I had formed with Stamos and the clarity of what we thought it was going to be. Initially, the, a, a new network president came in and changed the whole idea around. That's a whole other conversation we could have. But for whatever reason, they trusted in me at the time and allowed me to do that. I know other creators who have been in similar positions where – I don't know if that would necessarily be the case, and I don't know why it happened for me at the time. But I do think it is always – there's so many aspects to being a showrunner. It's so hard. Yeah. It is like – and it's also very counterintuitive to being a writer because typically writers are more introverted or they're, they're sort of used to being on the page. Suddenly you're in charge of this whole organization. And you have to make yeah. decisions about everything, casting and costumes and, and budget and – sets and you have to learn about all these things and editing that you had not really had as your skill set before that. And you're just mm -hmm. like, here, go. So the more experience that you can have in rooms before you get to that position, it can only help you and serve you when you finally are ready to be in that position. Or if you're lucky enough to get it early, certainly having somebody who's doing it with you, who's holding your hand. And I mean, there's, there's different versions of that. Like the good version is the supervisor, executive producer who is there to honor your vision, who is there to protect you, who right. only wants to help elevate you and the thing you're trying to do. Whenever I supervise writers, my whole goal is to try to get them to do the best version of their thing, not to turn their thing into what I think it should be. I, I think I can help with story and structure and stuff like that based on all the experience I've had over the years. But I've been an experience, but as a new showrunner came in in season two to work with me on the show, season one, it was very collaborative and very much my thing. Season two, another person came in that was not as much that way. And mm -hmm. I saw what it was like to not have that kind of support. So it made me feel like the best I can do when I'm working with younger writers 
is to support their vision. And I think that anybody who has the opportunity to go out and sell something that doesn't have all those years of experience to get to the showrunner level, it's very important who you get paired with. And also that it's somebody that you trust and feel like has the same vision in you and as you and doesn't try to bring their ego into it or make it a power struggle thing or anything like that. Cause it's already hard enough putting right. a show on its feet. The last thing you want is like disagreements between the people at the top. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. Well, that's amazing that you had that opportunity. And so what did you do after Jake in progress? Like I, once the show, you said that you did two seasons. Yeah. Uh, once Jake in progress ended, it was kind of like back into the world of, uh, what's next. And I had an interesting run, at, you know, career-wise of just uh, – I had a lot of years in a row of selling pilots and selling movies and getting things that got very close to green light stage would get to the two-yard line, the one-yard line, whatever, and then not get made. Mm. And so years and years of this. And sometimes during those years, I would go right on a staff of another show. I wrote on Gossip Girl for a while. Um, I wrote on a show called 9JKL on CBS. Um, I had a Broadway show that I did with some friends as kind of a lark that turned into something bigger. Uh, but the bulk of my career for a long period of time was writing and selling pilots and movies that didn't get made. And it was kind of this, um, really, it was fortunate and I felt very lucky and privileged that I was making a career each year, that I was right. making money, that I got to do the thing that I love. Um, but it was also endlessly frustrating and depressing that things would get close and then for, you know, no rhyme or reason, or maybe some rhyme or reason, they wouldn't happen. And I told you this earlier, you know, there was a moment in my career where it started to feel like the definition of insanity, just doing mm -hmm. the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And it was just so hard to, you know, having that early success and then trying and trying and trying to break through again was just years and years of perseverance and frustration and depression and therapy and talking through and trying not to have my self-worth rooted in the whims of the industry. Right. And so it was weird because I felt like I was at a certain level, but I wasn't at the level that I wanted to be. And it was just like, what is it going to take to get one of these things to break through? Looking back, do you think there is something missing from those other pilots? Do you think it was something just within the industry? I mean, now with Zoe on the air and in your second season, do you think there's something like a key to getting your show made and actually sold and on the air past the pilot or? You know, I wish I had some magic bullet answer for this. Yeah. Uh, I feel like, you know, I think I sold upwards of 20 pilots that didn't get wow. made. Oh my God. And, and I can tell you that at least, at least half a dozen of those, if not more, were as good as other pilots that got, you read other pilots that got picked up instead of yours. You're like, what, that one that got picked up instead yeah. of mine? And I think I told you this earlier. It's like, I did all kinds of versions of things. I did the personal project, the impersonal project, the high concept, the low concept, the big stars, the big director, the no thing. I could tell you all these things that I went out with and sold and it was exciting to be in those rooms and do all that stuff. And then it wouldn't happen at the last minute. So I think it was a combination of luck, timing, executives, the zeitgeist at the time, the direction that things were headed. Um, I can't necessarily pin to, I, I could, I could point to certain projects and be like, I think I know why that one didn't go. Mm. Or I think I know where, like, you know, there are certain things that I've learned over the years, like, you know, part of this is finding your voice, right? right. Cause it's kind of like, what is the thing that you want to say? And what is the thing that's, um, 
you know, representative of you. And I felt like there were a lot of projects that I sold over the years that I feel like someone else could have written that or someone else could have written that better because they know more about that world than me. And I think that um, so there were certainly cases over the years where I started to learn, like, what's something that feels fundamentally Austin-esque, whatever that means, or what's the mm-hmm. thing that's more me? And I don't think it's a coincidence that, like, First Date, the musical that I had on Broadway, was something that I just did that was kind of for fun, uh, kind of a, like a labor of love between me and two of my best friends, and that's the thing that went to Broadway. And Zoe's is a project that's incredibly personal to me, that taps into all the things that I feel like I'm about and that I want to be in the world, and that it's musical and comedic and dramatic and emotional and really deeply personal because it's about my father and we can go into that. So I don't think it's a coincidence that the thing that is sort of the most me and the most personal, the most the things that I care about is the one that has had some kind of longevity. Uh, I do think there's some correlation to that, but I have a show that's going at Apple right now that to me, I, I'm proud of it and I like the show, but it feels very much in the vein of things I had sold before. So right. I don't know, you know, that's where it's like, I'm still the same person I was five years ago, seven years ago. I don't know why this pilot goes and that one doesn't go. That's, that's part of like being a writer too, is sort of being able to roll with the waves and the, mm. um, the acceptance and the rejection and that you got to sort of really love the thing that you're doing and keep going. And I've always, as, as bad and as frustrated as I got, I would always then have the next idea. And then the next mm. idea would excite me again. And then I would get excited to write that. And so I had to start to learn to, enjoy the process and to find joy in the process because the result is out of your control. Right. I mean, well, clearly you're great at pitching if you've sold over 20 pilots. Is there a key to the yeah. pitching? And, and oh, I have a whole, or I have a whole structural pitch thing. But you're I not going to tell us, are you? Is that one thing? I can, that... tell, you, I can tell you a couple places, places of it. I mean, yeah, the, I, I would love to. I'd love to know. I always start with the personal and I always start with why this project and why me. Mm. And then I talk about the tone and I talk about what I'm trying to achieve with the project. Mm. And then I can go into various versions of, you know, characters and then pilot and then and then uh, here's some sample episodes. Like there's different ways to mess with the structure after that. Right. But I think it's important right up the top to let them know who I am or who you are, what you care about and why this is the thing that you have to write. Right. The universality comes in the specificity. And so, but, but, but I think that's true. I think what people want to see fundamentally, it's like, you know, a lot of the best shows on TV over the years, not all of them, but a lot of the best shows really do come from some personal experience or personal place or something, or it's revealing something about the people behind them. So I right. think to let them know when you're going, especially for a TV pitch, to let them know this is why I want to write this. This is why it matters to me. And this is why I'm the person for it. And this is mm-hmm. also how we, we can get 50 episodes or hundred episodes out of it. I think it's important to sort of couch it that way up top and to let them know like why, why this project means something to you. Right. Yeah. I love that. That makes a lot of sense. So let's talk about Zoe's. You, t- I mean, you touched on this as a really personal story. Um, so how long, well, maybe you should share the personal story for those uh, listening and watching that don't know. Sure. So my father passed away several years ago from a very rare neurological disease called progressive supranuclear palsy or PSP. And my father was this really dynamic, outgoing architect, interior designer, had a certain kind of vanity about him and cared about the way he looked and exercised all the time and all that. And uh, he would go running on San Vicente every day in Los Angeles. 
And uh, then very quickly, out of nowhere, he started losing uh, control of a lot of his functions, started falling backwards. Uh, he started slurring his words. And within a few months, he could no longer speak, um, couldn't walk. He was, um, you know, relegated to sitting on a couch. All he could do for the last several months he was alive was move his finger and blink his eyes. And we knew that there was something going on inside, um, but we didn't know how much he was processing, if he was processing. And it happened young. I mean, he was not, I mean, not super young, but he was um, 68 when he passed away. But I was in my, you know, mid thirties, early thirties. Mm. And it was just so shocking because it was like, we had a really strong close family unit. And uh, my mom had had heart problems years earlier. We were always worried about my mom. We never for a second thought anything would happen to my dad. And also I was having my first son at the time. So I was becoming a dad while losing my dad. And it was just a really emotional, charged, difficult time in my family's life. It changed everything, it changed the course of my life. Mm-hmm. And then um, I just knew that at some point I felt like I was going to have to write about it because I always felt like my best writing came from personal experience. And I was thinking, do I do like a two-man show with a father and son on a stage? How do I do this in a way that doesn't feel sad? Um, and I had sold a pilot to CBS a couple years before Zoe's called Moving On. Which was, and this was the pilot that probably got the closest to getting made before Zoe's. And it was about a family a year after the dad had passed away. And it was all about the mother mm-hmm. trying to go back in the dating world and the son and with his kid and all. So it was all these sort of personal things that were happening to us after the fact. And right. I was like, you know, maybe, maybe the, in, the stuff that I've been afraid to write about, truthfully, is really the time when he was dying. Mm-hmm. And one day I was just, I was thinking about how could I do a show about my dad and I. And I was like, well, I love musicals. And I had been on this musical kick for the last several years. Not only had I had the Broadway show, but I had sold, I think, three other musical projects, maybe four. And I was just, and suddenly I was being brought up for a lot of musical type things. I was like, how could I do a musical? And I was like, oh, well, what if the way that my dad saw the world in those last six months that he was alive was through big musical numbers? And that was really like the genesis of the idea. And I just... When I thought about it that way, it suddenly felt less sad to me, and I kind of got a little bit of a mm-hmm. smile on my face, and it felt a little bit hopeful. And then I thought, well, maybe it's just small if it's all from this internal guy's perspective. I'm not sure how to dramatize that. But what if there was a lead, and originally the lead was a, a, a guy, because um, I was trying to write from my own experience. Mm-hmm. And uh, what if the way he, what if he got this power to suddenly see the world and people's internal thoughts, internal emotions as big musical numbers? And what if this was a way that he could finally connect with his father and actually be able to dance with his father or hear his father through these songs in his last months. Mm. And that's really where it all came from. And then I kind of came up with the whole storyline and how it should all work. And then I pitched it to Paul Feig and Paul Feig said, I want to do it with you, but I think the lead should be a woman and not a man. And I thought about it for about five minutes and, you know, it was always set in tech in Silicon Valley, San Francisco. And when it was, when I made it a woman in tech, cause I wanted it to be somebody who, saw the world in very black and white ways and who also had an, who wasn't very good at connecting with other people. And that by getting this power, it was going to teach them how to have empathy. It was going to teach them how to connect with others. And then when I thought about it as a woman in tech and started reading about women in tech and how uh, there's so much less women in tech and there's a lot of misogyny in that world, it suddenly felt like there was more against her in a, in a way that we could get good conflict and story moments from. And so within like five minutes, I turned it around and it became Zoe's. Wow. That's amazing. It's an incredible, you know, story. Thank you for for sharing all of that. Um, so, how long once you started writing, or did you go in to pitch it with just 
with the script or just the idea? And how long did it take you from that conversation with Paul to getting it on the air? I had, a, I mean, I had the pitch pretty planned out when we went, uh, when I went to Paul. I had mm. at that point, I I was under a deal a deal at Lionsgate at this point. I was working with these amazing producers, Eric and Kim Tannenbaum. I had my list of ideas, like which one should we do, and they were like, "We think you should do that one because that's the personal one." Yeah. And so I kind of had written up the pitch basically, and then and then Paul was also under a deal at Lionsgate, and Eric had been talking to Paul. Also at the same time, like before I forget, I was working with Universal Music Group on another music project that was going to be using songs from their song catalog. So I had, I suddenly had this outlet into a whole world of songs that I didn't, because the first thing that was always going to come up in meetings was how are you going to get songs right? Yeah. How is that going to work? And so because I was already working on another idea with Universal Music Group and I already had that relationship, I went to them and said, instead of that other thing that we were working on, you guys want to work on this thing with me? So we had the pitch. I had Paul. I had the Tannenbaums and Lionsgate and Universal Music Group. And so all of us together went out and pitched it as a show. And it wasn't a script, but it was, you know, like a, a nine page pitch. I, I try to take, make the pitches around 20 minutes long and I try to be really animated and try to have, throw some jokes in when I'm telling the pitch. So it was pretty thought out, like who the characters were, what the kind of songs were that they were going to sing, how it was going to function in terms of her, uh, work life, home life, dating life. That was all kind of built up in the pitch. And then there were a few networks that wanted it and, uh, NBC was really supportive and really encouraging and, felt like they really understood it and we mm -hmm. sold it to NBC. And then um, I probably sold it in like September. And then when this was when before COVID, when there was like typical pilot season. Right, and I know, right. it's, I know it's different for streaming than networks and networks are starting to change and be more year round. But for the longest time, it was you sell the shows in the summer or the beginning of the fall. You write them in the fall. And then they pick them up usually uh, right after first of the year, like early to mid-January. And so that was kind of the trajectory. I wrote it, mm. you know, October, November, December, sometime in there, outline into script. And then they picked it up in January. Wow, that's amazing. Well, I could like sit and ask you like a million more questions, but I am going to be kind and open it up to um, our audience. So exciting. So exciting. I love it. What do we got? Don't be shy. No one's, maybe people have, oh, yes. Okay. Yes, Liv. Uh, Liv. All right, here we go, Liv. Hi. Hi, Liv. Hi. Um, so I just was just wondering, what is your advice for like young creators looking to get into television? Advice, like young writers? Yeah, young writers. That'd be awesome. <laughs> okay. Um, well, it's a, it's a few different pieces of advice. I mean, I think the first piece of advice is if you can find any way to get into a writer's room of sorts, you know, just to be around other writers and sort of form relationships, whether that's as a, I know writer's assistant jobs are hard to get, but if there's like even writer's PAs or anything that sort of allows you to sort of be in the space of it, I think that's just, it's always a good thing to try to um, meet other like minds who are kind of doing what you want to be doing. So that would be the uh, first piece of advice. Another piece of advice would be to, Try to write things. First of all, you got to write. I, if you want to be a writer, you have to write. I know lots of people that say they want to be writers. And I'm like, well, what if you're in there? Like, well, I have this idea. But no, it's like if you want to be a writer, you have to actually write things and not just talk about writing. And I know it's hard, but like that's the work, right? So like the work is it's like a muscle. You're only going to get better at it the more you do it. And the more you do it, the easier it gets. And like learning to be open with your work and let people read your work as long as it's the right people to be able to hear constructive criticism and to not get defensive when you hear that criticism. 
Um, but you know, it's got to be the right people who you're giving it to who are not going to squash your dreams and make you feel horrible. Um, and I think the other piece of it too is it's great to try, you know, obviously it depends on the kind of thing that you want to write and the genre that you want to write. But I certainly think if you can find the personal way to tell that story, I think there's a personal way to tell Star Wars. I, I'm not saying it has to be like, like, um, insecure or Lamy or Atlantis. Like it can be, it can be whatever you want that thing to be that feels true to you, but to write the thing that feels true to you, not the thing that you think is going to sell. I would so much rather read something that feels like a unique voice or an original voice or something that matters to somebody that deeply personal or just specific or whatever than the thing. Cause I think I spent a lot of years um, selling the thing that I thought they wanted rather than just doing the thing that felt true to me. So I would always encourage people. It's a cliche. I know, but to some version of write what you know, and I don't think write what you know means it's got to be specifically about growing up on this block and doing this thing. But I do think it should be something that feels organic to who you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Liv. Sure. Oh, we got more. We got more. We're starting with Aiden. Hi. Hey, how's it going? Good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. Um, I My question is, when you were first getting started, what were some books or resources that you used to refine your craft and, and just become better? I mean, I did read Save the Cat. And I did read Story, which is that famous book by now I'm forgetting his name, which I should not forget. Robert um, McKee. The story is like Robert McKee. Robert McKee. Um, I re- I'd also read a lot of like classic screenplays at the time. For me, that was like William Goldsman. Gold- oh my, how am I butchering names right now? I think it's William Goldsman was like my hero. I can't remember his name right now. Um, but you know, he ha- he was like a very famous uh, screenwriter who had written Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and The Princess Bride. And all the president's men, which are these kind of classic movies. So I would read as many screenplays as I could get my hand on, especially like quality screenplays. Certainly if you want to be a TV writer, I think the more it can only help you to read sample, not uh, actual episodes of the shows that you like. So you can actually see it. There's something different between watching the show on screen and reading it on the page and hearing, looking at the writing and seeing how the voices sound and seeing how it's structured and seeing how long scenes are. And I think anything that you can do to sort of immerse yourself in the world of the things you want to be writing, I think that's always a good, um, a good strategy. And I think, uh, you know, if you're looking to write like a spec of something, I would encourage you to write a spec of me. You know, I don't even know if people are doing this anymore. Like, I don't, I don't know how popular it is to just write specs of shows that are already, that are already on the air. That was a thing that was very popular for a long time. Most of what I read now when I'm reading writer submissions is original material, which I would rather read anyways. But I do think certainly learning what, you know, seeing the other things in the genre that are out there that are reflective of the kind of thing you want to write and then writing something that feels like it's in that genre. I think at least it can help define you because I've also talked to writers who are like, yeah, I'm writing a sci-fi thing and a romantic comedy and I got this cool teenage thing. It's like, I don't know what your point of view is. I don't know what you want to write. So I think anything that sort of helps explain like I'm an hour dramedy writer who likes to write emotional relationship stuff. Well, if that's what you feel like you are, then you should write a sample that reflects that. Don't write like a Deep Space Nine or something. Like, so the things, the things that you're writing should feel, um, again, like true to the kind of things either that you like or the kind of writer that you want, that you think you want to be. Cool. Thank you so much. That's great. You're welcome. Glad I could, glad I could help. All right. Um, Geneva. Hi. Thank you. I'm so excited. I have like a million questions, but I'm trying to pick 
One, first question is, I, I had a manager recently express some interest in seeing this pilot that I'd written. And then immediately, you know, the feedback, I was like, oh, this is well-structured. Do you have another sample? And I was like, crap. The question is, what kind of writing samples should I be focusing on? Because um, I want to be ready for the next opportunity and have something that I'm proud of to back up what I've already, you know, spent a lot of time working on. Okay, this is an interesting slash complicated question. So first answer I would say to you and to everybody who's a writer on here is always put your best foot forward. Okay, so I'm going to say that one more time to make it land. Always put your best foot forward because it is very, as you learn from that manager, you, you get one shot, right? So don't, as exciting as it is to want like that, to get it out there and to get the thing going, don't put it out there until you feel like it's ready. I, I would have advised you in that moment to write that manager back and say, you know what? I'm working on something new right now that I'm really excited about. Should be done in like a few weeks or a couple months, whatever, whatever the time frame is. I'm going to get back to you when I have that other thing. Um, because I just think if you – and I really – I've always felt this way with scripts, with anything. I never wanted to put it out there until I felt it was ready. So I feel like that's a really important piece of it, as exciting as it can be. I think – for you, I mean, I don't know what kind of writer you are, the kind of things that you want to be doing, but I would encourage you, I encourage everybody to have two pieces of material. I actually talked to a writer this morning who said she's got this one thing she really likes. And I said, that's great, but if you're trying to get representation and people read you, you should have two things. And I would say that the second thing should feel like it's the same voice. So it doesn't mean that it needs to be um, another pilot. If it's a pilot you send, it doesn't need to be another pilot that's exactly like the first pilot, but it should feel like it came from the same person. So maybe it is a 10 page short story that you write. Maybe it is, uh, I don't know about poems or something like that, but like it, or it could be a play. It, it doesn't have to mean that it has to be two pilots. It, it could be two pieces. It just needs to be another piece of written material that feels like, that's what I mean. Like I think people get confused if it's like one's a site, one's Westworld and the other one is modern family. It's like, I don't know what you are, but if one's Westworld and something's, you know, sci-fi adjacent that deals with human behavior or something, then it, you see that it's like of a piece or like your tone is the same in both or something. I just think you want them to be able to say, oh, I get Geneva. I get what kind of writer she is. That's kind of exciting. We don't have that cool kind of thing here. So I just think it's kind of about consistency. And I don't think there's like a magic bullet where it's like you wrote a, you wrote a pilot, so you should write a screenplay. Or I think it can be anything that's just another piece of material that feels reflective of your voice. That's super helpful. I know what to do next. And then right. the second question was, I've been given the note to consider adapting this comedy uh, into a multicam format. Okay. I'm very open to, but my initial reaction was multicam, there's, it just feels so static, just the way that it is. And how do you reconcile that and make something feel a little more natural or um, not so staged, but multicam do you have any insights well having spent several years of my life writing on multicams i would tell you that if you don't like multicams and you don't and i don't i don't like multicams so i i have learned over time that i don't think multi look there's a few multicams that are amazing like the seinfelds and the friends and the cheers and fraser there's certain ones over the year how i met your mother like i can point them out but the vast majority of them are not that and the I find that multicams are so incredibly joke dependent 
And it's more like kind of a play, which theoretically I should like that better because I'm coming from theater. But ultimately, I always felt like at least the shows that I was working on was so much more about the joke than about the real emotion or the storytelling. And so I feel like if you don't love multicams and multicams are not in your bones and you don't want to do a joke every three lines and it feels forced to you, then maybe you should not take that advice. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Super helpful. Okay, good. Bye. And guys, by the way, I'm only one person, one person's opinion. I've just been doing it a long time and I have thoughts about it, but you know. Hi, Michael. Hi, Kaylee. Hey, Austin. Hi. So I love hearing how much Zoe came from a personal place for you. Um, it's a pretty wild watch for me. I'm a writer director from San Francisco. I've worked in musical theater in Beck and I've recovered from a rare neurological disorder called hallucinosis, wow. which caused me to have musical hallucinations throughout my youth. What? So it's a really wild watch for me. So I have to Whoa. ask you, now that I have this opportunity, since PCP is presented so authentically in the show, yeah. were the musical hallucinations rooted in any other neurological disorders? Or did you do any investigation into sort of neurological conditions that would cause that? Or is it just musical fantasy? Uh, well, I mean, P PSP, um, I had a front row. I had a front row seat with my dad through the, his decline. So I was very familiar with the steps of the decline and also bringing in the caregivers and end of life stuff and all of that. So um, I knew that the season one trajectory, every storyline that happened with the family in season one was taken directly from what happened in my house um, down to the taboo buzzer and asking for lemonade. And if you've seen the show, like everything was, was, and the guy coming in as the, as the caregiver who really changed the family around. It's all very based on personal stuff, but in terms of the neurological aspect of it and sort of why does Zoe get this power and what does it mean? That is based on musical fantasy and my own thoughts of like, kind of like, uh, you know, a what women want kind of movie or something of like the, like the magical realism fantasy of what if. Not based, not grounded in any particular science. But Mary Steen, but Mary Steenburgen, who was on the show, you can read about this online. She talks about it all the time. She had surgery in 2007 and came out of the surgery and suddenly could hear music. And she was never a musical person before that. And she became a songwriter after this. And like music is always going in her brain. And so when she signed on to the project, she was like, I don't understand because like I didn't know other people had anything like this, but I hear music all the time and I related to what was going on in that part of why she said yes. That's amazing. Awesome. Well, cool. And also the San Francisco people love seeing San Francisco shows. Love it. Love it. Beta Breakers this past week. It was a big shout out to San Francisco. Yeah. 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 All right. Thanks, Kaylee. That's awesome. Thank you. Um, maybe I'll just ask one of my questions. How do you do all of those musical numbers in one episode? Like I was watching the other day and also, they're so beautifully done. You had like one song that was one shot. I think you guys do that a lot. And I'm like, that must have taken all day to do. How? 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 And then we have to discuss Mandy Moore's choreography because it's phenomenal. Well, those two, and <laughs> those two, things, those two things go hand in hand. Because Mandy, first of all, we've done like 140 or something numbers now already on the wow. show. And we, um, every episode has between four and six numbers but there have been episodes that have had as many as nine. And I mean, we have eight days to do the show. There are musicals on Broadway that'll take eight years to get to Broadway. <laughs> yeah. And we're doing it every single week. And I just think like we're, we walk such a tonal tightrope 
And the degree of difficulty is so hard. And thank God I have a partner in Mandy Moore because she's a genius and understands what I'm trying to do. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't do any of this without her. And so what happens is every time we, we come up with a song or come up with a song idea for the show, Mandy and I sit down and we talk about what is the conceit or the idea behind the song. It's never just somebody standing there and singing. There's always an idea behind it. Right. And then so Mandy and I will figure out what the conceit is or what we're trying to accomplish or what the goal of it is or the, the comedic idea or the theatrical idea or whatever it is. And I always had a rule from day one was always it was kind of like a musical theater rule, which is the songs either need to advance plot, reveal character or be funny. And mm-hmm. so if a song doesn't do those, any one or th- one or all three of those things, you can't do it. And then along with that, it's like, how do we continue to surprise and change? So then Mandy will take what I give her or, or what we talk about. And uh, at the same time, we're also working with Harvey Mason Jr., who is our music producer, and Jen Ross, who's our music supervisor, because first we have to get the rights to the songs, which is a whole conversation in itself. Then I, we start working with Harvey on what do we want our sound to be like when we do the song, because we're doing our own versions of all the songs, and we don't want them to just sound like karaoke or carbon copies of the originals. So right. a lot of times we'll have Harvey do like deviate from the original song. And then Mandy has to go off with what she calls her skeleton crew, which is kind of a crew of dancers where she will just work with their bodies to create the vibe of the dance. And sometimes she'll do a lot, a lot of versions on her own. And then she will film the version that she's happy with and show me the filmed version or I'll come into the rehearsal room with her if I'm in Canada and we'll work on it together. And then that filmed version, which is like what we call a previs of the dance number is the thing that then we work with the director on to figure out exactly how we're going to shoot it. And oftentimes it is almost identical to these previses that she's just doing on her phone, moving around the space. Wow. And so, but it is a multi-leveled, multi-tiered process to get to shoot day. And remember, like we're chasing it all the time. There's no breaks. So when an actor isn't on set shooting, they're in a rehearsal room with Mandy or the pre-record recording booth or anything. So it is kind of like stage door away. It's like endless theater camp always as we're just trying to make our days and make the schedule. And it's like, it's also why I haven't slept in two years. Cause it's like, it's, it's 17 hours a day, seven days a week. And the wow. reason I'm so protective of it is because I feel like if it's two degrees this way or two degrees that way, it can be corny. It can be too jokey. It can feel saccharine. So trying to nail that sweet spot between comedy and drama and emotion and all that, it's a very delicate balance. So you really do, like, as far as rehearsals, that's all in that eight-day period. You're not, like, prepping and rehearsing, like, weeks before leading up? I have to get way ahead of it with the music. So the network has to sign off on the story at the outline stage because that's when I need to start chasing the music rights. Yeah. So I say, guys, if you don't like any of these songs or you have any problems with the story, you have to tell me an outline, not even script, which is very early for network. But this is something they've had to get accustomed to very with the process with Zoe's because I have to get chasing down the music rights, I don't know, six weeks, two months in advance because then it takes a while to get the music rights. And then we got to go through our whole process of getting Harvey to get the demos right. And then so Mandy, Mandy will start, you know, one or two episodes out. But sometimes when you start bottlenecking, it gets pretty close where the actors will have one or two rehearsals two or three days before they shoot it. And then they go and shoot it. And it just depends on what time of year we are and how bottlenecky we are and how many episodes. And it gets to a certain point later in the year where we all just look like death and we're like, how are we going to get through this? Right. Wow. But here's, but here, but here's the weird, here's the weird slight secret. We do a lot of wonders on the show, the numbers without any camera cuts. Right. And we like that initially early on in the show as a visual style for the show also made it feel more theatrical 
because it's like Broadway where you don't get to cut. I hate musical numbers in movies and stuff where it's like every second it's chopped up into little pieces and get this one shot of the hand and the one shot of the foot. It's like, can we just see the dance? So we always really wanted to see the dance and experience it the way that, um, that, uh, Zoe would experience it. And so part of that meant being living in the moment. What we've learned over time is because Mandy comes in so prepared and we have an amazing steady cam operator, if the actors are well rehearsed enough, we actually save time by doing it as mourners because instead, it. instead of having to do it from 10 different angles over the course of a day, you, you do it for, uh, two hours, two and a half hours and you, you do it, uh, you know, seven times and you get it right. Right. That makes sense. That absolutely makes sense. They just, to me, those oneers. I always, I love oneers. I've always like my favorite and watching it. I'm just like, oh my God. And everything is like perfect. Like, and especially the one, oh my God, the song at the party, I think it was Zoe's birthday and they moved through yeah, and there were kiss, tons kiss of me. people. Yeah. I was like, oh my God, how did everyone hit their mark and do that? Right. Like that was because Mandy's phenomenal. incredible and she, yeah. she works with the actors. She works with their bodies. We had multiple rehearsals in the space before the day. Amazing. I mean, it really is like theater. The one that was most like theater was American Pie, which was the end of season one, mm. because that was like a seven minute oneer. And it wasn't just the actors. It was the lighting. It was the production people. It was the people moving the scrims behind the scenes because it was right. passage of time. So it was so many different departments all interconnected, all working together to create that one impressive oneer. So incredible. And and when we do hit it, when we do like, that's the one, it, it, there's an energy that takes over the entire set. Even when, even anytime we do music in the show, it just like people realize when they're feeling like, oh, it's, it's hard and it's work. And yeah. the second the music turns on and the dancing starts, something happens in everybody's body. The whole mood changes. That's incredible. Wow. So fun. I want to come to set. I just want to come sit and watch. Um, You're always, once the borders open up and we don't have to quarantine for four Yeah, days, totally. So. And I'm allowed on set. We're not in the middle of a pandemic. Um, yeah. Austin, thank you so much. You were so thank awesome. You. This was very fun. We'll talk soon. Keep, keep writing. Keep writing. Thank you for tuning in for today's episode. SeriesFest is a nonprofit organization, and our work would not be possible without our incredible board of directors, staff, and partners who make programs like this podcast possible. We have ongoing competitions, initiatives, and mentorship programs year-round, so please check us out at SeriesFest.com and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to stay up-to-date on announcements. This episode was edited by Neil Trulio with original music by Adam Westbrook.